to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. I like the first two of those, and so far I haven't had to do the third. Um, but uh, I got the call Friday morning, and I said, sure, I'd be glad to step in, and we'll be praying for Trevor, and I understand he's doing better. So we'll continue to pray for him and get him back to finish his uh, series on the attributes of God. If you've been here, you know that he spent the last nine weeks telling us about God and, and kind of opening up each different attribute a little bit with the idea that as we understand it better, we'll be drawn to God and we'll be drawn to a deeper, more intelligent worship of the God whom we serve. He's got one more left. I think it's sovereignty of God, and we'll save that for him for next week. This week, though, I want to kind of in this in the spirit of what he's been doing, we're going to look at some attributes, but of Jesus. We're going to focus on Jesus this morning, and we're going to look at five verses, and in those five verses, we're going to see seven attributes or characteristics or, or titles of Jesus that's going to help us to understand him better and our relationship with him better. So, um, there's not going to be any scriptures up there, so get your phones out, get your Bibles out, whatever you use, or listen to me as I read some of those. But it's going to be Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. So while you turn to there, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, I'm going to lubricate my voice a little bit there. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. I'll be reading it from the English Standard Version. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power, by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of his angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So the writer of Hebrews is telling us that in the past, God spoke many times and in many ways through many different prophets. And if you read your Old Testament, you can, you can see how true that is. He, he spoke through dreams. He spoke through visions. God spoke through mighty acts that were interpreted by the prophets. He, he's, they had stories that they were told. There was direct commands from God. There were exhortations from God. Angels appeared to some people. God spoke directly to others. And that, as wonderful as all that is, and as beneficial as that is for us, we have something much better now. Now God speaks 
through his son, Jesus. See, Jesus is more than simply the last in a long line of spokesmen for God. In Jesus, according to what we just read, we have a new age altogether. It's called the last days in the New Testament. See, when God spoke through Jesus, when he sent Jesus and spoke through him, they marked the end of an imperfect methods of God communicating with us. The curtain had finally fallen on the previous age, and this final age has now dawned. That Old Testament revelation was true and accurate, but it wasn't final. God's revelation through his son Jesus is not only final, but superior. The whole book of Hebrews is about that. Sometime you can look up on your Bible app or your concordance. Look how many times the word better or superior is used in the book of Hebrews. You see, Jesus himself is superior to all that came before and all that will come later. And that's because of the reasons we can see in these five verses. Let's look at those. The first one is that he is heir of all things. Verse 2 tells us, He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's telling us that Jesus is God's royal heir. When you're the um, king of a country, then you have an official royal heir who is in a very special position. He has authority, and eventually he'll have all the authority of the king. So Jesus is God's royal heir, and that reveals an unrivaled dignity and authority that he has, especially as compared to all the wonderful prophets in the Old Testament. But the heir is also the creator. He inherits what he made. Jesus is superior because he is the heir of all things and also because he is the creator of all things, as we just read in verse 2. John talked about that in John 1, 3. He says, all things were made through him, Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. In Colossians 1.16, Paul said, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Through him, he's the creator. For him, he's the heir. Now, God could have made the universe apart from his son, but he didn't. And the New Testament takes great pains to show that he didn't. The translation I just read, English Standard, says that Jesus created the world. And we need to think about that a little bit, because what immediately comes to mind is this planet, right? Okay, Jesus created this planet. But if you have NIV, you'll see that it says he created the universe. The reason for the difference is that the literal phrase is ages which is very unusual in speaking about God's creation. But it's a good word because it's a lot more comprehensive, isn't it? It includes not only what was created, but also the periods of time through which what was created exists. Jesus created the universe, time, and space 
and all it contains. Jesus is superior because he's the heir of all things. He's the creator of all things. And he's also the expression of God's glory. Verse 3 starts with, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Now the word radiance implies an intense brightness. It doesn't really come close, but I, I know sometimes the way we park our cars by our, our front door and yeah, I'll walk by and I glance out and I'm just blinded because the sun is hitting that windshield and it's coming right back in my eyes and boom. That's the thought behind radiance here, just blinding radiance. Or maybe it's like a sunset or, well, sunrise. You're looking at all those pretty colors and you're looking and all of a sudden you're blinded when the sun actually comes up and you get the full blast. That's the radiance that's mentioned here. That's a picture of the glory of God that shines through Jesus. Later, Paul would write that the glory of Christ is part and parcel of the gospel itself. In 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, he says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The light, the radiance of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Does the good news about Jesus shine in your eyes? Does it have that burst of glory when you think about it? Or has it become old hat and common? If you want to see the glory of God, it's telling us here, you look at Jesus. Jesus is superior because he's heir of all things. He's the creator of all things. He's the expression of God's glory. Now the brilliance of the sun is irreparably connected to the sun itself, isn't it? For Jesus to reflect the glory of God assumes that the sun shares the very essence of God. So the next thing we learn, he's not only the expression of God's glory, he is the revelation of God's nature. Again, verse 3, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. The one who reflects the glory of God shares his nature. The word used for imprint here is something that we're probably not too familiar with. The idea was used to have a seal. We've probably seen those movies where you know, somebody writes a letter and they put wax on it and then they put the ring on it or they take a stamp and they stamped it. The word used here for imprint is that stamp. So what it's implying is that you press that seal into the wax and what you have is the exact thing that was engraved on that seal. The exact imprint. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. There's no difference between the nature of the Father and the nature of the Son. So the Son gives us a clear picture of the very character of God. Because he himself is God, he's the absolutely authentic representation of who God is 
and what God is all about. Jesus is superior because he's the heir of all things. He's the creator of all things. He's the expression of God's glory. He's the revelation of God's nature. And he's the power that sustains the universe. Verse three, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In the same way that the sun created, he now sustains the universe. There are some theologies that talked about the idea, well, yeah, God created the universe, he kind of got it going, he threw it out into the cosmos, and he's just backed off now, and things are running according to his plan, but he has nothing to do with it now. That's not what this verse says. He is at the center of continuing the stability of the universe. And nothing is excluded from the sun's sustaining activity. Uh, Paul again, Colossians 1.17 said, He, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Giving the idea that if he withdrew his holding together hands, everything would fly apart. Jesus is superior because he's the heir of all things, the creator of all things, the expression of God's glory, the revelation of God's nature, and the power that sustains the universe. And he has completed the work that God gave him to do, also in verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I think the author here has come to what, for him, is the heart of the matter. All these other things are true and wonderful, but here's the heart of it for him. In a sense, it's the gospel. The thing that gripped him most was this, that the very Son of God, just described as heir of all things, creator of all things, the power that sustains all things, the true expression of God's glory, and the revelation of God's nature, this is the one who has come to deal with fallen mankind's sin. Did, do you ever think about that? Jesus is my Savior. We may say Jesus is my Lord. Do you ever think about the fact, though, that the one who is heir of all things in the universe the creator of all things, including me, the power that sustains everything, the true expression of God's glory, the revelation of God's nature, the one who has dealt is the one who has dealt with my sin and called me into a relationship with him. Any culture that has a concept of sin or wrongdoing has a way to deal with it. Some have that wrongdoer do great works to make up for his sin. People talk about balances. Oh, do enough good things, it'll you know, balance the scales. Other cultures do their best to ignore and deny that sin even exists because they know they can't do anything about it. But almost all of them begin with people and rely on people's own strength of will and what they do to deal with the sin problem. The system of the Pharisees during Jesus' time was like that. 
they had a very elaborate system made up of good works and self-effort that was the measure of how you dealt with sin. The idea that sin could be purified without these efforts was foreign, and when Jesus started to talk about it, they thought he was a blasphemer, someone who spoke ill of God. Jesus made purification of sins, not only to forgive them, but to cleanse of its defilement. Sin stains, but Christ has effected the complete cleansing of sin when he died and rose again. Has he cleansed you from your sin? Have you allowed him to be your savior? Ask him into your life to be your savior? And then it said he sat down. That seems like kind of a strange thing to say. Now in our days, you can do a lot of work sitting down. I did a lot of mine as a pastor and missionary sitting at a desk working on things in order to get up and share with people. Or So you do a lot of sitting. In those days, you didn't do so much sitting if you worked. You were standing. You were doing something. So when it says he sat down, there's the implication that he's done. The task is finished. It's time to sit down. It says he sat down, showing that the sacrificial work that he had done on the cross was finished. There's no longer any need for sacrifice. Later on, the writer of Hebrews would talk about that at some length. If you care to, you can turn to Hebrews 10, 11 to 18. We'll be back in the first chapter in just a moment. But Hebrews 10, 11 to 18. Hebrews 10, 11. Every priest stands daily for his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, talking about the Old Testament system, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by that single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to this after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. We recognize that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father with nothing left to do about sin. The work's completed. Those who are His, those who believe in Him, are forgiven for all time. That means that our past, present, and future sins were dealt with at the cross. See, God didn't discriminate by time. I know we live in a kind of a stream of time. I can remember back when I did this, and I look forward to when I'm going to do this, and I'm here now, and if I think about my relationship with God, I can see some growth, I can see some stumbling, I have some hopes for the future. 
I know that these things I've done are sin. I know I'm struggling with this now. I hope I'll be better tomorrow. That's how we think. But think about it a moment. Jesus died 2,000 years ago for your sins. All your sins. All your sins. All my sins. In our past, present, and future, were all future to him. He knew them all. And he paid the price for them all. Is that how you think about your sins if you're a believer? They're a done deal. They're forgiven. Yes, you struggle with them. They sadden you. You confess them. You do things to stay away from the things that tempt you. You struggle with it. But they're forgiven. In a sense, are you seated like Jesus? Relying on him? Or are you standing up, running around, trying to make up for your sin? Working hard to deal with them? Are you attempting to get forgiven? To get cleansed? Are you relying on the fact as a believer that you've been forgiven? You are cleansed in Christ. You see, our sins have been taken away once and for all if we are believers in Jesus, if we've received him as our Lord and Savior. That's superior to all else. Jesus is superior because he's the heir of all things. He's the creator of all things. He is the expression of God's glory. He's the revelation of God's nature. And he's the power that sustains the universe. And then when it becomes almost more personal to us, he is the one who has completed the work God gave him to do, to die for our sins and rise again. And the last thing in this passage that shows his superiority is that he has a greater name that's verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. These days we use a name and we just kind of, you know, throw it out there. Well, Joe differentiates from Jim. And, and if you've got somebody with the same name, you'll say Dave 1 or Dave 2 or old Dave or young Dave or I'm picking on Dave because he's sitting there but you know Dave you know Dave that one or or sometimes people even go so far as to use their their middle names I I had an uncle that I called Uncle Chris his name was Robert Christensen the third and I heard somebody call him Bob once and I thought who are they talking about because my dad's name was Robert so we called him Chris, just so there was no confusion in the family who we were talking about. So the name didn't really mean that much. But in the New Testament times, it meant a lot. It was usually taken 
to be a summary of who that person was. One's whole character was somehow implied by the name. Jesus' name here was Son. That's a name no servant angel or faithful prophet could claim. Verse 5, the author kind of digs into that just as he starts to talk about Jesus superior to angels. He said, for which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? None. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me son. Whatever the relationship between angels and God, I don't have a, much of a clue about that. It's not son and it's not father. You see, Jesus is superior to all. He's superior to all who came before and all who came after and who will ever come. He is the heir of all things as God's son. He's the creator of all things as God's son. He's the expression of God's glory as God's son. He's the revelation of God's nature as God's son. He's the power that sustains the universe as God's son. He's the one who completed the work that God gave him to do that no one else could do. And he has a greater name than all other beings. The name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I think of the decades that I've known you as, as Savior, nearly 50 years now. I think of the joy that was at first, the wonder that was there at first, to know that you accepted me and loved me and, and welcomed me and forgave me of my sins as I prayed and asked you into my life. But too often as the years go on, it becomes almost second nature. The name Jesus starts just to be a, a word that we use a lot. We start to take for granted, at least I did and do, what, all that you've done for me and who you are. Thank you for the reminder in this little passage of who it is who died for me, who it is that welcomes me, who it is that wants to be my Lord and Savior and companion. We thank you that he was faithful to do all that you called him to do while he was on earth. We thank you that he sits at your right hand now. We thank you that the work is done. And we ask that we would continue to marvel at it, that it would cause us to worship you, that it would cause us to make him truly Lord in all aspects of our lives. We thank you for him. We thank you for the call to know him and accept him as Lord and Savior. We thank you for the gift that a relationship with him is to us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.
with the, I, with the realization that you are going with us. We thank you for all that Jesus is and all his glory, and we thank you that you've called us to be his. Be with us this week to guide us, to direct us, to remind us of who you are, and to remind us just who stands with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.